You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we go through the books of the Bible one at a time in a three-step process we read, think, and apply. And today we're going to do something we don't do very often. Uh, We've done it with a couple minor prophets this far, or thus far. We're going to do a whole book in one episode. And usually, I guess you might think, okay, you do a simpler book for one episode. We usually run about an hour long with these episodes. Uh, Today we're in Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, whatever you want to call it. And Drew, this is only eight chapters. I don't know if I've ever read a book this short and been as confused as I am after reading it. I think the main... The main ideas great, here... Great introduction, yeah. Andrew. The main ideas here still, are... Rule number one, uh, instill confidence in your audience and your ability. So, uh, Well, I'm, I have confidence in your abilities on this one. Um, I'm not going to try to pretend like I'm an expert on the song one song, that, I've tried to teach you that you should... Even even if you don't have confidence, you should fake confidence. it. They'll never know. I feel but very good really about... Not. My knowledge of Song of Solomon. There you, there you go. We'll think, start the recording here. I think I'm going to impart a lot of wisdom today. Great, great. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, it's not that hard of a book. Uh, it's just there's a lot of discussion about how to read the book, which we are going to save for That's what think. confuses me, yeah. And, and once you decide your approach, which the author does not reveal to you, he doesn't come out and say... This is a collection of love poems, or this is a story about Solomon. It just goes right into it, mm-hmm. and you have to figure out what is this thing that I'm reading. We yeah. know a few things about it. We know that it's inspired, and we right. believe that. It's been in the canon longer than a lot of other books, as a matter of fact. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, Going back to the earliest manuscripts they have found, uh, that's what I was reading earlier, that Song of Solomon's been in there. It's never been questioned. Right. As to whether or not it should be in the canon. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, so we have that much. We have this interesting title. Uh, you know, we all call it the Song of Solomon. That's the heading at the beginning of the book in my Bible. But verse 1 calls it the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And in scholarly works, they refuse to refer to it as Song of Solomon. They like to call it Song of Songs. In fact, I'll notice in some books, when the abbreviation for the book comes up, it's SOS. Right. Uh, which is Song of Songs. Well, I guess that could stand for yeah, Song I mean, of Solomon too, so that doesn't prove yeah, anything. About that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, what that means is the best song. Yeah. Because in Hebrew, they really didn't have superlatives, I understand. So they weren't able to say, you know, this is the greatest song or, or whatever mm-hmm. they would say. He's the song. It's the song of songs. Kind of like the song, I guess, above all others. Or yeah. this is what a song is supposed to be. Right, right. Well, we, you know, more familiar examples are the temple. You know, it had the holy place mm-hmm. and then it had the holy of holies. Oh, sometimes yeah. it's called the most holy place. Mm-hmm. But the literal Hebrew rendering of that inner sanctum was the holy of holies. That means the holiest place. And then in another one of Solomon's works, Ecclesiastes, he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Yeah. So it's the most vain of all. So this is the most songy of all the songs. The songiest. The songiest song. The songiest. Yeah. 
you know, Solomon wrote, according to 1 Kings 4.32, 1,005 songs. Oh, yeah. Very, very exact count there. And, you know, we don't have all the information, but we make an assumption that this was the best of 1,005 songs. Uh, that's what the title means, and we have that. We also see that this is a unique book. There's no other book in the Old Testament or New Testament like this that is strictly romantic love poetry. Mm-hmm. It's in the section of poetry in the Old Testament that begins with the book of Job and ends with this book. Um, and it's entirely romantic love poetry. Uh, you know, it's just the voices of lovers praising one another, yearning for each other, inviting each other. And so that makes it really unusual, and it leads to a lot of the confusion that you were referring to before. Uh, so we're going to take our usual approach, reading, thinking, and applying. And the reading is actually a lot easier than what we have been doing. We've just completed a big project on this podcast, the book of Jeremiah, where we've tried to trace a storyline In this, Mm -hmm. I have the uh, luxury of just kind of picking some of what I think is are the more beautiful sections of this or more descriptive sections of it for the reading, and uh, I will be just doing this arbitrarily. So, and you know, I'm doing, I'm kind of taking the lead on the reading for this one. But if I skip something that you really like, bounce right in there and read it. You know, Um, but I'm going to start with. um, you know, there's a lot of readings, there's a lot of passages in this song on physical attraction, just appreciating right. the beauty of the other lover. Some things you might not want to read in a class with younger children, maybe. Yeah, I, Even well, teenagers. <laughs> maybe. I think the metaphors would pass right over them. I, I don't yeah. know. It depends on how old they are. Junior high, let's not do this in a junior high class. Yeah. But maybe, Too much giggling to get anything yeah, done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, we'll just start with chapter 1, verse 2, where the woman in the song says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out, therefore virgins love you. Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Okay, another passage on physical attractions over in chapter 4. And this is from the perspective of the man in the song. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes and have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, that graze among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. I think verse 7 is a pretty good way to sum up the way this guy feels about his beloved in the whole book. What you just finished reading, that is, is verse 7. 
You're beautiful altogether. There is no flaw in you. Yeah. And I think there's something to be said here for if you can't, if you read that and then you can't appreciate some of the differences in culture from then and now. Exactly. Then I think you're, you're missing something. Well, that's huge part there. of what makes it poetry is he's speaking in the idiom of the time and place. Right. So he's using, you know, I, I've heard people, we, we had this in class, uh, we have a marriage class here and we were teaching this book and somebody kind of poked fun at some of the metaphors and I really don't think that's fair. Yeah. I mean, what are they supposed to use American 21st century metaphors? Yeah. You know, like It's not going to be like Led Zeppelin song lyrics or anything. <laughs> well, that's actually 20th century. No, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah but yeah, no, it's old. not going to be you're not going to be anything like that or anything anything from our pop culture. And why would we want it to be? I mean, yeah. this is beautiful and new and fresh and uh you know, going back over you know, this this is a person who has spent, whoever wrote this particular section, has spent a lot of time outdoors watching wildlife, and he has seen uh, goats, mountain goats, coming down the slopes of Gilead. Mm-hmm. And he's seen them come down in a herd, and I don't know if you've ever been able to observe that. I've seen that in the Rocky Mountains, uh, mountain goats coming down together, and they kind of blend together, and you see you know, movement within the herd. And it looks like this mm-hmm. white mass is just kind of moving. And it does resemble flowing hair. Yeah. You know, if you've ever seen it before. Um, the reference to her teeth as shorn ewes, those are female sheep. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems a little odd, but, you know, shorn ewes to a shepherd is something clean, is something beautiful, and none of them are missing. Yeah, I was about to say that. That's my favorite part. That might have been kind of unusual in those days where they didn't have modern dentistry to find a, a yeah. woman with all her teeth. Yeah. You know? Uh, you think about just the simple things, like I'm pretty sure they they couldn't just go to the store and buy a toothbrush and then a tube of Colgate. No, like, not, not then. They didn't have near the, I guess, the amount of sanitary luxuries that we have. But it is funny to read... You know, the flock of goats is like your hair. Uh, your teeth are like sheep that had twins and not a one of them has lost their young. Mm-hmm. So it's, but yeah. uh, well, like you said, when you explain it, and I think that's a good thing to keep in mind as we start off here. Some of these things might sound a little humorous at first reading, but there's really a lot of, you know, meaning behind them culturally without us taking the time to stop and explain everyone. Right. Yeah. Um, let's see what she says about him. That's chapter 5, verse 10. My beloved is radiant and ruddy. That's kind of a red outdoor complexion. Distinguished among 10,000. Uh, his head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. And he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So you see the emphasis in this throughout, not just mm-hmm. in those two sections, 
is on physical attraction. Yeah. Not a whole lot of, like, admiration of his inner qualities, his character, his soul. Although yeah. I think she wouldn't feel this way about him if he didn't have that. Um, there's also some expressions of fidelity or her commitment to him, his commitment to her. And uh, I wanted to read some of those as well, like chapter 4, verse 12. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. A reference to her virginity, saving herself for her lover. Yeah. Uh, chapter 6, verse 3. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. Very famous scripture there. A lot of people have that engraved on the inside of their wedding rings. Yeah, and it's beautiful. It's beautiful poetry, even translated into the English. She says it again in different words in chapter 17. I'm my beloved's and his desire is for me. And uh, then we have her brothers involved here. And I don't know if you wanted me to read this one, Andrew. Uh, The final advice? Yeah, well, the the brothers... uh, here, the brothers of the woman seem to be speaking in chapter 8, verse 8. We have a little sister and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. So, you know, this is while she is young, they are protecting her from men. You know, which in those days was a very real problem. And so she is able to say in verse 10, I was a wall and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. So she was, you know, true to her lover. She was pure. Uh, She was chaste. That's that's what all this talk about being locked up and being a wall is she was sexually pure. But the theme of the book, and the most beautiful part of it, in my opinion, and most everyone else's, is chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Let's go back over this now and uh, discuss interpretation. Uh, This book, as most of our listeners know who go to church is rarely, if ever, discussed in church. And I think, you know, aside from the fact that it talks about romantic love, Mm -hmm. it's uncomfortable for people also because they're not quite sure what this is that we're dealing with. Yeah, Uh, They're not sure what we're looking at. There are two basic interpretive questions. And the first one is, what approach do you take when interpreting the book. In other words, what genre does it belong to? And there are three approaches that his, historically have been taken towards this book. The first is the allegorical approach. The rabbis and later the church fathers were fond of looking at this as an allegory of God's love with his people. And of course the rabbis were looking at 
God and Israel, and the church was looking at Christ and the church. Yeah. Um, and you can understand where they got that. You know, that's not an, un, you know, that's not something that can't be substantiated because, yeah, you know, we looked like at the Rose of Sharon and the, his banner over me is love. Those are things that we apply to certainly in our um, songs and things. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, even if you go into prophetic books, like we, again, going back to Jeremiah, uh, in Jeremiah chapters two and three, God is getting a divorce from his wife, unfaithful Jerusalem. Right. And there is a lot of that in Ezekiel, mm-hmm. uh, Hosea. Yeah. I was you know, how say many Hosea. times is Israel referred to as the bride of God? And then the church as well in the book of Revelation and in other places. Yeah. Uh, we're married to Christ. Yeah. That's Romans have, 7. Even have in Ephesians where Paul talks about the mystery of marriage and um, he talks about wives submitting their husbands and husbands loving their wives. And he says, this is a great mystery. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Yeah. So saying that marriage itself is an allegory, really. I yeah. guess an example, maybe. Now, let's define what an allegory is before we settle on this. Um, an allegory is not a true story. Everything in the allegory stands for something else. Uh, so, Jesus is... The vine and the branches, for example, in John's, John 15. That's an allegory. Yeah. I am a, I am the vine. You are the branches. There is no vine and branches. There's God, uh, there's Jesus and yeah. his disciples. Um, you know, Kinda the most. Like C.S. Lewis and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or if you've read any sort of Christian allegory, mm-hmm. you know, these are fictional well, works. Yeah. Yes. The, yeah. Kind of. Everything's kind of used as a symbol to explain something else, or to at least represent, maybe not explain. Yeah, some will draw fine lines and say, like I know Tolkien, uh, who wrote Lord of the Rings, hated allegory. I don't know about Lewis and what he thought about the Chronicles of Narnia, but I know Tolkien, or Tolkien, however you say Mm -hmm. that name, he hated allegory. In fact, there's a preface to The Lord of the Rings where he goes into great detail about how he has not written an allegory. He has written a story. I didn't know that. And the story has applications to Christianity, but it is not an allegory. Yeah. So an allegory is like Pilgrim's Progress. I know that is definitely an allegory where it doesn't even make sense as a story that stands on its own unless it describes the Christian experience. Okay, I think that's a good definition for an allegory right there. It doesn't really even make sense without the objects in mind, the true objects in mind. Right. I I think if it's a story, here's the way I'd like to think about it. If it's a story or a poem that could just stand on its own without its counterpart or the thing that it symbolizes or uh, foreshadows, then it's not an allegory. In the truest sense. In the truest sense. Partly allegory and partly something else. Yeah. But I think what we're looking for here, because I know somebody's listening thinking, well, it could be, it could still be an allegory even if it stands on its own. But yeah, but right. in the truth, what we're looking at here when we're talking about this particular book is this idea of does it truly stand for the purpose of its writing? Is it to convey the symbolism? 
uh, to show the relationship between God and his people. Yeah. Did Solomon write this thinking about Israel and God? Yeah. Or even Christ and the church? Mm-hmm. And my opinion is no. I don't think that's what we're looking at here. Doesn't seem like it. Um, now, we'll get to the literal approach in a moment, but if you kind of combine the literal approach with the allegorical approach, you come up with a typological approach. Mm-hmm. Or you you might use the word application as Tolkien used it with regard to the Lord of the Rings. So okay. a type is different from an allegory because a type is real. Mm-hmm. A type is a part of a real story. Uh, Noah really built an ark. Yeah. And, and Noah, you know, survived a flood. And that flood is a type of baptism, according yeah. to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Moses really built a bronze serpent. And people really did have a problem that was solved by looking up at the bronze serpent through faith. Um, but that serpent, that bronze serpent, is a type of Jesus on the cross. Right. So that's the difference between types and allegories is allegories are analogies that are strictly fictional analogies, whereas types are stories that are whole in themselves or actual historical events yeah. that also have the layer of meaning for the future. So they're mm-hmm. layered. Yeah. A type is a layer. You know, David is a type of Christ, but David was a real person. Yeah. So the typ- typological approach to this would be that Song of Solomon is about a real love story between a real man and woman and... It also has to do with Christ and his church. And it was meant for that purpose. Then there's the literal approach, which I believe is the most probable interpretation, which is just that this is a collection of love love poems about two people in a relationship. Um, And this interpretation focuses not so much upon the relationship between God and his people, but upon love, uh, marital love, the importance of human sexuality, Romance, uh, positive biblical emphasis on, on married love, uh, which is a needed subject in the church today and was needed in Israel whenever yeah. Solomon wrote it. I think a lot of people don't really want to think about that interpretation because maybe they're not comfortable with the idea of a whole book of the Bible being devoted to the importance of physical, intimate love in marriage. You know, that's something that we, uh, we talk about from Paul's writings a lot, um, but we don't really, you know, I think this gives us a view towards, there's several things that are brought out in, that are uh, of importance here in the book. And I know one of them uh, we kind of mentioned in the break earlier, or maybe it was in the last section, um, where there's a heavy focus on the physical appearance of the the husband and wife here. You know, this teaches us things like the importance of physical attraction in marriage. You know, uh, it's not like in marriage you, there there is no physical attraction between the two partners. A, pr- a principle that we see here is there's, you know, that is a a necessity, I guess, for the kind of love that we're talking about. And this also goes to show, um, 
you know that the topic here is something that makes all you know most of us blush i think because of our culture um all these kinds of discussions are kind of taboo or you have these behind closed doors uh this isn't something you really want to publicly talk about and you know even now you know I've, i'm a little despite uncomfortable the fa- despite the fact that the movies and television shows we watch yeah it's all about it are very blatant about this stuff so what we're doing is we're allowing hollywood to educate us on sex instead right. of god i was about to say that's yeah. the danger that's the big danger. Here you have a great example. Blu- for some reason, we blush when we read it in our Bibles. But we yeah. don't mind watching it in our living room with, with a, when our kids are running around seeing it, too. Yeah. So, I think what we have here is, I mean, if it's a collection of, and I know Kaufman, uh, I was reading some of his commentary earlier, he's got a problem with Song of Solomon being in the canon if it's just a collection of mm. uh, writings or, you know, poems. And, you know, I... I don't really think he's right in saying that because there's so much, even if it is just a collection of poems with no narrative behind or no allegorical meaning in mind, it still serves as biblical sound teaching on, um, you know, on, uh, this type of relationship in marriage. There's, there's nothing scandalous. Well, there may be something scandalous, but not in the way that we're talking about right now. There's nothing really scandalous in this. We read probably we we may have left off the most explicit passage in here, yeah. but but we read most of what makes people uncomfortable. I, there's nothing in here that's wrong between a married man and woman, right? Uh, so why would and it doesn't somebody go try into, to make it into something that it's not? Yeah, I read. I can't remember what um, commentary or article or what I was reading, but. Uh, there was a man talking about how some people have, they say, well, this can't just be about um, intimate relationships and marriage because, you know, that's pornographic. And the Bible certainly not going to be pornographic. There's nothing pornographic. Right, else. because it's about the emotions that go into this kind of love. It's not about the mechanics. No. And that would be a lot more awkward if we were reading something like that. But this yeah. is about the emotions that are a part of that and about the fullness of this kind of love and I think this kind of brings a lot of people to this next interpretation if you're ready to move on. Yeah, we we need to get on to the other. So it's it's not another interpretation. It's another interpretive question. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. the first question was, you know, how, how do we approach the book allegorically, typologically, or literally? And, you know, I think, are we agreeing that this should be read literally? I mean, is that, I, yeah, are you I settled think on is, that? I'm settled on this is a, these were definitely letters, or not letters, uh, poems written to portray love between a man and a woman. I don't think this is yeah. uh, devoid of that kind of meaning. Right. Well, so we go to a second question, and the second interpretive question is, can you trace a story here? Is there That's a story? The and question. we all would like to. You know, I think everybody wants to see. Now, here's what I've always heard, and I don't know if I've heard this or I've assumed, but what I've always heard is this is a love song from Solomon to his first wife before he got all messed up. Mm -hmm. So this is the one that he got right, and it was his first one before he had a thousand wives. And, uh, you know... 
I don't know if there's much of a story there, but besides that, uh, she would be the Shulamite bride. We didn't mention that in the reading, but there's yeah. a, one reference to her identity in chapter 6, verse 13, as a Shulamite bride, and Solomon discovered him, discovered her in his youth. They had a short monogamous relationship that was very beautiful, and then as he rose to power, he began to have a problem with women, and that's how I've always heard it interpreted. Um, now, there is a different idea, a different idea sometimes referred to as the shepherd hypothesis, and that basically understands the shepherd the girl loves in the book to be someone other than Solomon, and the Shulamite falls in love with this shepherd from her homeland, but was taken, maybe kidnapped, by Solomon's representatives for Solomon's harem. Yeah. And she remains true to the shepherd and spurned the king for her true love. And, you know, if you look at this, it's a love triangle, and Solomon's kind of a villain in the book, although he's kind of an unwitting villain. He's yeah. not intending to be a villain, but he's a villain that's coming between the maiden and her true love. And when you read it, and unfortunately we don't have time to go through the passages and kind of explain that interpretation, but there is a lot that owes itself to that. Yeah, there, I think there's a pretty good bit. Um, what is the section where the troops are coming? It's like this caravan is on its way, and she's um, not really... Well, we have excited about that. Yeah, verse four says the king has brought me into his chambers. There's a lot of debate yeah. on what exactly that means. Um, there's a few people think there's a few references to the harem in the harem of the king, and there's actually in verse nine uh, the man who, whichever man is speaking here, whichever you want to debate that to be. Um, well, you can see, uh, where, where am I looking for? Verse 8 of chapter 6. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one is the only one, the only one of her mother, put to her who bore, pure to her who bore her. Um, and then you read down, continuing on in verse 9, the young woman saw her and called her blessed. Queens and concubines also, they praised her. That's probably Solomon talking. He's talking about queens and concubines. So for me, that kind of pokes a hole in the whole, this is, Solomon early on with the first bride that he ever had. Yeah. Because there's already a harem. You know, he's already got a bunch of wives and concubines running around his palace. Yeah. Is what it looks like. The passage I was thinking about, by the way, begins in chapter 3, verse 6. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Litter being like that you know, sedan chair yeah. that, you know, They're a king would sit in and he'd be on, carried yeah. around. So here they come, all these mighty men of Israel. Uh, that has to be Solomon. Well, it says King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. And so she's saying, what is this coming over the hills? And I see this woman coming out of her tent. She happens to be very beautiful, and Solomon found out about her, and he wanted her. And so he's coming yeah. after her. And this is in that context. It looked like it looks like uh, that they're talking about Solomon riding to his wedding, because uh, in verse eleven, 
when it says song or verse nine, he made himself a carriage. Verse ten describes the carriage. Verse eleven says, "Go out, daughters of Zion, and look at King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart." So, so you could look at it very positively. Yeah, you could, depending on what choice you make as you go into this, you could see Solomon as a good guy, or you could mm-hmm. see him on his way to steal this woman away from her true love. And I think, here's my thing. I'm trying to think about this in the context of the story of Solomon that I know. Solomon is a man who destroyed the unity of the kingdom of Jerusalem by going after all these wives. His wives are what turned his heart away from the Lord. Um, and scripture tells us as much. Now David kind of had a problem with this too, you know, with Bathsheba. Uh, we all are familiar with that story. But Solomon was different from David um, in a lot of different ways. We often call Solomon the wisest man that ever lived. He might have had the most knowledge, period. And that thing at the end of his life, Ecclesiastes shows you that he, uh, you know, maybe in retrospect he figured things out and knew that fearing God and keeping his commandments was really the most important thing in life. There's definitely a point in Solomon's life where he is not a good guy. Uh, he is not at all concerned about the well-being of women or you know it doesn't doesn't look like he respects women the way that he should which is a big problem with the time in general um but you know solomon more so than others with all these wives all these concubines and i stopped to think well what makes the most sense in the context of that solomon solomon does not make sense except there's i i, I follow you yeah and I agree with a lot of that, but there's one problem. Solomon's the one who wrote this. Yeah. So did he write it in a moment of a guilty conscience and then say, you know what, I hate to admit it, but you know this song about me being a terrible person is the best song. Yeah. Or somebody else picked it up and said this is the greatest of all of Solomon's yeah. songs. Um, there's one other way that we could look at it. And I really feel this is the best way, and that is to try to stop tracing a story through it. Uh, instead, look at this as an anthology of poems that was put together into a song. No. Um, and if that's the case, then chapter 3, verse 6 could be the beginning of a different poem, a different scene. It could just be an episode, a visual of yeah. Solomon, you know, on his way to a wedding. And maybe this, maybe that's why you don't get the identity of the woman as a Shulamite bride until chapter 6, verse 13. Because if yeah. we're sitting down to write a straight up narrative, and this is poetry to begin with, it's not narrative, mm-hmm. wouldn't she be introduced earlier than that? You know, yeah. wouldn't her identity be given? So, I think that you stay out of trouble by just looking at this as a collection of love poems. Yeah. And there's one there's one thing that we should have mentioned before we started all this talk about uh, the storyline, and that is that some Bibles, a lot of modern Bibles, oh, have done yeah, us a yeah, favor sure. of indicating the speaker, at least the gender of the speaker or the, the number of speakers, uh, yeah. according to the pronouns and the in the Hebrew that we're not able to to read. So yeah. you'll see in your Bible the heading she, she, he, she, and then every once in a while you'll see others. Yeah, and That I doesn't think, tell you a whole lot, but... 
I think it's we need to helpful. keep in mind here, and how a lot of people outline this is, this is a song. This was written to be sung. Mm-hmm. So you have, uh, you know, maybe this was the song of songs. I'm just really just throwing this off the top of my head. This could be the song of songs because it sounded the best. Mm-hmm. Also, I mean, we don't know why it's the song of songs here, but perhaps um, it was performed. Yeah, it's um, probably performed. I've I've read several outlines that have it um, outlined as there's a female soloist, a chorus, and a male soloist, and they go back and forth through these he, she, and others. The designations that are given. Um, in the it, would, it would be really interesting to hear that done um, yeah. sometime. Yeah, uh, that'd be cool. Um, there's some us. one of the feasts, and I want to say, I should have double checked this. I want to say it's Passover. This is read at mm. every Passover. It's one wow. of the feasts, and yeah. that shows the appreciation for this. Yeah, it was important. Really neglected piece of scripture. Yeah. Um, you want to get into anything else? You know, I don't think so. I think uh, we've got a lot of really good application for this. Yeah. So we can use the remainder of our time. We'll take a quick break. Okay. Be right back. We're going to get into some practical applications here and there's so many we could make we decided to limit ourselves to issues involving intimacy and marriage i think that would be very helpful to our listeners so let's get started on them because there's so much that could be said on this line and backed up by the song of solomon number one i think it's very clear if we read through this song that our american 21st century cultural sexual confusion is both empty and sinful. Um, You know, we talked a little bit about how we're embarrassed to read this in the Bible, but we're not embarrassed to watch it on HBO. Yeah. And uh, there's something really confused about that. There's something confused about our reluctance to talk about this book. And, hey, this isn't the only book in the Bible that has graphic you know, talk about positive sexual encounters and yeah. and negative sexual encounters. I mean, mm-hmm. there's several stories in the Old Testament about rape, incest. Yeah. Um, there's some really graphic stuff in there. Yeah. And the Bible just speaks about it openly and plainly as a fact of life. Of course, it frowns upon the sexual sin, but it doesn't try to hide the positive intimacy within a marriage relationship and we we don't have time to read through some of those but you know i think everybody is aware of these if they've studied the bible very long it's hard to miss them yeah i think what we have done we, we're in a place now where in our culture is you know sexuality is looked or i guess it's frowned upon you know this is something that you cannot don't even we i guess we try and hide it uh, with kind of trying to err on the side of keeping younger people safe from getting into some of the dangers that come along, like, uh, the late, the woman in this, in this book many times, four times actually, she says, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And I think we 
we have done this kind of to that tune of, okay, we don't want to let people of a certain age know about this kind of stuff. We want to keep it taboo. That way they don't get involved in all the sins involved with it. Um, but I think. How do they shift from that to the positive? On their wedding night. Yeah. Straight into a positive view of sex. Cause I think if you do you that. Don't. Then you have on your wedding night two people feeling really guilty. Or at least one person, you know, whoever was raised like that, feeling really guilty for what they just did because they've been taught their whole life. This is something you cannot do, cannot think about, cannot, you know, and I'm not saying you need to be involved in this before you get married. No, of course but not. But I think yeah. we need to be, uh, honest about what we teach about this kind of thing and, you know, uh, and, talk and about treat how it tastefully it and, you know, yeah. uh, we, you know, not only, there, there's a line to be drawn. Yeah, like we're talking here with the book, we said earlier, this is about the emotions involved, not the mechanics. Yeah. So, well put. If we can do it in a tasteful way, like you mentioned. But, you know, this is something, obviously you can use this and take it, uh, use the emotions here and take them the wrong way and desire to have that outside of marriage. But where's the real joy here? And I think that's one of your points of application. So I don't want to take that uh, before you get there. Well, I do, I do want to share before we leave this cultural sexual confusion point, share a, a quotation I found from David Mays. In his book, Hebrew Marriage, he says, The entire positive attitude to sex which the Hebrews adopted was to me an unexpected discovery. It is true that I have always been struck by the unembarrassed plainness of speech with which they discussed sexual matters, but I had not fully realized that it had its roots in an essentially clean conception of the essential goodness of the sexual function. This is something very difficult for us to grasp reared as we have been in a tradition which has produced, in many minds, the rooted idea that sex is essentially sinful. Right. That sex can be a gift of God to be received with gratitude and joy freely is a truth too long forgotten and sorely in need of a revival. Yeah, that's a great quote. excellent quote. Yeah, he just said what I was trying to say in a lot less words. Right. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's go on to number two, which is related to the first one. Uh, Number two... Sex is a gift from God to be valued, not abused. There's a lot of perversion condemned in the Bible. That would include premarital sex. That would include adultery, prostitution, homosexuality, rape, of course, incest, of course, polygamy. I know people say, well, there's polygamy regulated in the Old Testament, but it's condemned uh, in the light of Jesus Christ. So there's a lot of other things that maybe we didn't name. But also on the other extreme, uh, the extreme of asceticism, severity to the body, yeah, is condemned. Heavy, over, um, fasting too much is condemned. And yeah. celibacy for celibacy's sake is condemned. I know that mm-hmm. Paul said it's good for a man not to touch a woman, 1 Corinthians 7, 1. But then he said in the next breath, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, yeah. let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Yeah. Um, the Bible takes the middle road between the extremes of sexual license and asceticism. Yeah. It says that sex, along with all the rest of what is natural to humanity, is something God recognized as good whenever he created the world. And it's something that, you know, we should look at as positive as long as it's within the confines of marriage. Okay, yeah, and that's exactly 
uh, what I wanted to mention there is I think we have to look at what is so great about the sexual relationship here that we read in Song of Solomon. It's not, you know, this is not just a book about how great the act itself is or how good it feels or whatever, which is what we almost expect to see from our American mindset. You know, yeah. if it's a book about that kind of thing, it's about the the physical feeling. Selfish. Yeah, it's about ends. that selfish, very you know, fleeting pleasure. Song of Solomon is not about selfish, fleeting pleasure. This is about the devotion of a man and uh, his wife. This is about their de- devotion, their fidelity to one another, and this is part of the joy of that marriage. So it's not something we have to be afraid of teaching because we're not, you know, it's not like we're trying to hide this thing that feels really good from people that, well, you haven't, you don't have this piece of paper, you haven't been through the ceremony, you can't do that yet. You know, this is an idea here of something that is only fully enjoyed when it's in the marriage relationship. So if you have it outside of marriage, you don't have what you read here in Song of Solomon. Mm -hmm. You don't have what God teaches about this topic if it is outside of these parameters that we read here. So I think that gives us a reason not to be so afraid to teach about, you know, what's involved in marriage. And again, you know, we want to make sure to qualify, qualify that to say the emotion, not the mechanics. Yeah. Um, well, tasteful, and, but and that was my third point that yeah. this is to be enjoyed within the marriage. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she, she is, Saving herself, as mm-hmm. chapter 8, verse 10 says, she was a wall. Yeah. And there were probably advances made towards her that she shunned as she waited for the right person. She had no intention of fulfilling these desires that she had with anyone other than her husband. Right, and verse 12 I, of really chapter clear. 4, a garden locked is my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. Exactly. So the stuff yeah. to be desired here is not the feeling, the physical feeling that you get. The stuff to be desired is the purity, the devotion, and the then... lifelong commitment. Right. And this is just a part of that. This is not... That's not the final goal. You know, because for good night, for an 18-year-old American boy, what's the final goal of relationship? According to movies, TV, music... I mean, the final goal is just sex in and of itself. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's the exact opposite of devotion and purity and, you know, honor among the two members of the relationship. It's about, you know, I mean, and everybody knows from, I mean, I'm not going to have to say it and embarrass myself here on the, on this recording so people can play it back for me later. Um, but the idea given to people now is you're in the relationship. What's the end goal of that relationship? Yeah. Sex. And when you've done that a few times, what else is there? And yeah. that's why there's all these, uh, construed views about marriage. People saying, Oh, just one person for the rest of my life. How can I ever do that? God didn't make us to that yeah. way, you know, yeah. but when you view it for what it really is and what it was really created for and you know, it totally changes your mindset about what it is, and I think even removes a lot of temptation to get involved in it before you get married. I think if you have a proper understanding of what it is, what it was designed for, then it makes it easier. It's another safeguard on your purity. Yeah, it makes it easier for you to be pure, not 
more difficult. I believe that. I believe, and again, it's it's where your kid's going to get their information about sex. Yeah. They're going to get it. They're going to get it from their friends. They're going to get it from television, or they're going to get it from their parents and their churches. Yeah. Who's or God? Ultimately, God. Mm-hmm. So, what's the best source for that? Because it's not a choice of hiding it from them or letting them know about it. The choice is, where do they get the information? I think that's a great way to put it. You know, parents have got to learn this, and it's very awkward. And and the reason Andrew and I are recording this is because instead of talking to our kids, we're just going to play this for them and leave the room. Right. Yeah, we're not going to have to worry about the awkwardness. (laughs) That's not true. Andrew doesn't even have kids, so... Yeah. Uh, he's a long ways off from, from doing, from having to have the talk. Yeah. But, uh, let's go to one last, um, application here. Right. We've kind of already hit, uh, hit on it. And that is that marriage is intended to be permanent, uncompromising, and full of devotion. We've already read a lot of this beautiful, um, expression of com- con- commitment, uh, such as chapter four, verse 12, which you just mentioned. And then, in chapter 6, I'm my beloved and my beloved is mine. Right. Uh, I'm my beloved's and his desire is for me. One thing we didn't mention is chapter 2, verse 15, which has a really interesting metaphor here. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. You know, the pests that try to creep in and tempt you to sexual immorality, the pests that come in and try to create dissatisfaction between you and your your spouse, your fiancé, your husband, whatever. Uh, Catch those foxes, get them out of your vineyard, get all of the things like that, the the unsatisfactory things away so that you can stay true to one another. And, um, you know, that's what that language is all about. Uh, So, you know, the bottom line is human love is as strong as death. Yeah. Death is strong. Um, you know, we, we heard somebody say a wrong interpretation of that line from Song of Solomon 8, 6 and 7. Uh, they were saying, you know, it, death is real painful and so is love. That, that's not the connection. No. The connection is death is inevitable and so is true love. True mm-hmm. love, when it's there, is strong. It cannot be broken. You can't, you can't get out of death. You can't negotiate with death. You can't negotiate with real love. The no. difference is you have to cultivate love and learn love and be loved to to understand love. And with death, it happens to everybody indiscriminately. Yeah. I think uh, for me, kind of closing thoughts on this. I know we're running out of time here. Uh, I'm just going to give you my closing thoughts from our impressions from our podcast today. Do we have a little bit of time? Yeah. Um, one of the things I have taken away from this, and we usually, when we finish a book, we like to give our closing thoughts on it. Usually, you know, that's, we devote nearly a whole application thing to it, since we're only doing one episode for the book. Um, I think it's, you know, Song of Solomon is a good way to show that we don't need to be afraid to teach about this sort of thing. Um, and really to use it, I guess, as a safeguard to younger folks uh, against some of the, you know, temptations. It's like the little foxes that you mentioned. 
Uh, because if you read Song of Solomon, if you teach sex for what it's supposed to be in marriage, then, you know, I, I guess it takes away a lot. I know I mentioned this before, but I'm getting all my thoughts in order here. I think it, uh, you know, deters people away from sex outside of marriage, pornography, any anything along those kinds of lines, because that does not get you what is to be desired from Song of Solomon. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's just part of it, but it's leaving out the most important and the biggest part, the most enjoyable part of it, is all of that stuff that we've mentioned from Song of Solomon with the proper place in marriage. It's not just an arbitrary, you can't do that before you're married, kind of like an arbitrary, you can't drive to your this age or something like that. You know, it's not like a, it's not a, I guess a age or maturity requirement just so you can go out and uh, do this as much as you want to do it. Is that making any sense? It's more so, of, yeah. it is something that is to be desired within this type of relationship. Yeah. I also think that the anticipation is part of it. Yeah. And our culture says no anticipation. I mean, a lot of this is written before marriage. Mm-hmm. Before consummation of marriage. And uh, there's no sex before marriage, but there is definitely thoughts about it. And yeah. that anticipation is not wrong, as long as it's an anticipation of for the whole married package. love. Yeah. yeah, for the whole package. So she is... She's anticipating it. He is anticipating it. And then, you know, we understand somewhere along the line they were married and, and found, found the love continuing to blossom into a long relationship. That's what these poems are all about. And that will help our marriages along with a lot of other information that needs to go with it. Yeah. Um, but this is very important. It's not the argument that romance is all there is to marriage, but that it is an important component yeah, to marriage. It is important. Yeah. So we uh, were able to finish a book in one episode. See? There we go. Uh, we're one more down the road. Yep. Uh, there are lots of other uh, books covered. If you want to visit the66.net, 66 is the number there, and uh, send us some feedback through Twitter, Facebook, Email, you can find all that information online. Uh, one thing we really would like are reviews and ratings on iTunes to get us up in the standings. We're still way behind a lot of weird, unrelated podcasts. We're also, so, we just got bumped behind a Batman podcast. Behind it? Just now? Right. Or, I know we've been behind I it. Last week. Well, I, I didn't even see it till last week. Oh, great. I just knew we were well, behind Star Wars. Now we're behind Star Wars and Batman. <laughs> well, those are two they're, big institutions. Yeah, I mean, uh, they're pretty respectable. Been around a long time. Pop culture icons, but hey, yeah. this is the Bible. Maybe we should change the name to um, the 66 mm-hmm. Batman Star Wars Bible Podcast. You know, lots more people are going to leave us a review, I guarantee you. It's possible. More traffic. It's possible. We keep trying, and you keep listening, and we appreciate that. Uh, we are getting ready. Should we announce our next project? We're, sure. we're gonna we're gonna tackle Romans next. Yep. Uh, if you've been following us in chronological order, we've been in the Old Testament for a long time. It's time to get into the New Testament. And what a better way to do that than to tackle the great, all-encompassing epistle of Paul, the Book of Romans? It'd be a lot easier to outline. Um, yeah, 
it will be much easier in Jeremiah. So I'm really looking forward to that one, and I hope that uh, you'll join us with it next time on the 66 Podcast.